when we say to our students, you know, you get killed doing that. Well, I have seen exactly what happens when a formation is uh, comes together in a bad way and we have a mid-air. And I, I now know exactly what happens. Uh, I don't need another lesson in that one. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 56. Welcome back to the show and get ready to dive into some more stories from the helicopter industry. Wow, I've got to tell you, there was a heap of feedback about the previous episode with Australian helicopter pilot Matt Barker. It sounds like a heap of you loved his stories. Lots of comments also there from people that have worked with Matt to the effect that he is a great guy. Many of them have asked about perhaps Matt's most famous story, that of the chicken bone or chicken man. And that story is coming up shortly. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you haven't yet shared it with anyone, then I think today you'll be forwarding this to perhaps everyone you know. On the current news front, the HAI Heli Expo 2017 in Dallas, Texas has just wrapped up. Past guest on the show, Joey Arena from Texas Rotowing Academy, was at the expo and I caught up with him on Skype to find out how it went. Joey, you've just spent a few days at Heli Expo 2017 in Dallas, Texas. For those of us that didn't get there, what were, what were some of the highlights for you? Well, it was a great Heli Expo this year. I actually went a couple days early to take care of my CFI refresher, which I do every other year at Heli Expo. And uh, the very first day, pretty early on, Bell came out swinging with this plastic movie prop of a helicopter. And, uh, I mean, it was a monster. And uh, they're going to be pioneering some new technology over the next few years. And uh, they were trying to give some new concept art out there. And they had this one giant, just plastic helicopter, basically. And it's very futuristic. I'm sure that most people that have seen most pictures from Heli Expo so far this year has been able to get a little sneak peek of that. So that it started off with a real bang there. Were you able to get up close Mm -hmm. and, and look inside that one? Yes, and they had virtual reality inside of it. So you could sit inside and be able to do what they felt was an artist rendition of what was inside of their aircraft. So it was really neat. They didn't have any kind of futuristic cockpit inside. They had one pilot seat in the front, which basically meant to me that it was going to be one of those futuristic aircraft that pretty much flew autonomously and you just basically had a systems manager in the front. Yeah, I've seen the, as you said, like I think that's probably going to be most of the coverage. They'll, they'll definitely get their, their PR out of it this year. I think Airbus, you know, sort of had the show last year. But the, the VR yeah. seemed to be a, a fairly big thing. There was another, I think it was, um, there was like a, a rescue hoist VR one. So virtual yeah. reality seemed to be, you know, a bit of a, a theme this year as well. I got to do that also. It made me sick looking at it. I saw the uh, the, the background video and I felt sick <laughs> just watching the video. Yes. Yeah. It wasn't as bad as it looked in actual person. They actually had it rigged out pretty good. And um, what they did is it was just a VR headset, and they had a cable pull next to it, and you had a tanker below you dropping a basket down. And uh, it was really great. And watching the people get in there, some people, you know, they got dizzy, and some people, you know, they were pretty good. One of the neatest things was going over towards 
let me see, whose booth was it? I think it was Augusta Westland. They were redoing the new 189 this year, and they had a virtual reality set up where they had a hook and hoist from the ceiling with actual fans and everything, and you put the VR hoist on, and you're standing on a ship watching the line come down, and then you had a, a lift harness on, and then you reach up and you grab the hook, and you hook it on yourself and lift up, and as you're looking around, you can see the ship that's in the stress that you're standing on, and you get pulled into the aircraft, and they have people helping you with seats, so you actually feel like you're sitting in the helicopter, and they put some real thought into that one. So a lot of the booths this year seem to incorporate a lot of virtual reality into what they were trying to present to their customers. Okay, and what were some of the other things that really stood out for you? One of the greatest demonstrations that I got to see is I'm very fascinated with the helicopter pilots that fight fires for a living. And the Bambi Bucket Company had a full-size 500-gallon Bambi Bucket on display, and it was a shallow water version. So it actually had an electronic pump on the side of it so it didn't have to be dumped all the way in the water. They could winch that out of their water tank and drop the water while they were demonstrating the use of the bucket. And that was, that was really cool to see. Oh, fantastic. And did you get to a couple of the other lectures? I know there's, there's a whole sort of education lecture side to, to the expo too. Absolutely. I, I did three different classes there. My favorite was the CRM class that Randy Maines put on. He is an excellent speaker. He writes for Rotorcraft Pro Magazine. People will recognize him as the man that's always got to his antennas on. And uh, CRM was a big topic this year in the CFI Refresher. And I'm a big safety nut, and I really enjoyed his presentation. The main thing, it was CRM for single pilot flying, and um, really got some good information that I'm going to be passed on to my students. So the next class I took was the Burchard recovery technique and a man in one of the northern european countries came up with a new way to recover from settling with power and it was a very video laden class so you were able to see how instead of the traditional recovery technique of lowering the collective and reducing airspeed to recover from settling with power this man uses the rudder pedals and sideward cyclic to get the rotor disc into clean air quicker and to recover at a much shorter loss of altitude. So that was an interesting class. Those are pretty much the two most memorable that I did while I was there. But I spent most of the time helping share the Gimbal Cabri with the public, and our booth was the hit of the show as usual. Yeah, I thought that might be the case. It sounds like you did a fair few flights for people there too. Mm-hmm. Yes, I had my helicopter there doing flight demonstrations for some of the clients from around the world. And we were very successful this year. I don't have the full number of the aircraft that were contracted on, but they were writing contracts the entire time. So uh, I can't wait to see what the results were. All right. And next time around, it's in Vegas. Yes. Next year, it's going to be in Vegas. I really look forward to that Heli Expo. I've gone the last few years. I missed Vegas last time. And it looks like, it, you know, they've got more convention space than any other place in the country. Dallas was the largest heli expo to date. We had more than a million square feet of classroom and convention floor space. And they used every square inch. It was, it was a very good show. Looked fantastic. So, yeah, yeah very jealous that I uh, haven't been able to, to get one yet. But uh, thanks, Joey, for giving us you know, a quick update. Awesome. Thanks again, Mick. That was Joey Arena talking to us from Texas. You can hear more about Joey back in episode 40 where we covered the Cabri G2.
As I said at the start of the show, this is a continuation of the interview I recorded with Matt Barker from episode 55. Matt sent through some photos on email after we recorded that relate to many of his stories in his flying career. I've added these to the blog post for this and last episode at rotarywingshow.com. One of the photos is a New Zealand Huey flying in Timor with a, a training external load, which is essentially a concrete block. However, on the load drop is a sheet flying like a flag with spray paint on it that says, Happy 5th Birthday, Abby. And Abby is Matt's daughter, and in the photo, Matt is sitting in the cargo door of the Huey. Now, obviously, Matt was deployed and couldn't get home for her birthday. That has to be the best five-year-old birthday wishes I've ever heard of. You can see the photo up on the website. In the second half of the interview, we cover a heap of territory, including the worst peacetime loss of life for the Australian Defence Force, the impact of continuous operations on instrument flying skills and pilot progression, and the introduction of the ARH Tiger into Australian service. We start off, though, with the infamous chicken bone incident. It's another good Kiowa story, this one. All my stories are in Kiowa. I've got a couple from Blackhawk and Tiger, but not many Kiowas. So um, this story surrounds itself 10 years after the Lion and the, um, and the 747. So 10 years later, I find myself back in 161 Reconnaissance Squadron as a squadron QFI, and by now they've left Sydney uh, and they packed up in the mid-90s and they moved that squadron to Darwin when the 1st Brigade went to Darwin under a government decision and they decided that the, the Kiowa unit should go with it to provide helicopter support up in northern Australia. So you know, that's why I was there. So you're one of the senior, you're one of the senior pilots in the squadron? Yeah, so now I'm one of the senior guys. So on those trips, oh, sorry, up there we used to do a one-month deployment to Papua New Guinea where we teach uh, Kiowa pilots how to fly in, at high-density altitude. And so the way we do it in Australia with the Army is that we do these trips up to New Guinea and we go up to places like uh, Mount Hagen or Garoka and in the Highlands and we go and look for um, landing pads at seven, eight, nine, and 10,000 feet. And, and we, in, in the military in Australia, we are restricted to 10,000 feet as a, as a sort of a requirement because we have no um, oxygen systems so basically, you end up flying Kiowas uh, up at these pads, but it's very hot. So at 5,000 feet at Mount Hagen, it's quite common to have a 30 to 35 degree day at 5,000 feet. So it's pretty hot. So we go up there for a month. So anyway, I'd just been up there for a month teaching uh, people from our squadron and our sister squadron, 162 Reconnaissance Squadron, which were over in Townsville. And, and uh, we just finished. So anyway, at the end of that, we had um, four Kiowas to come out. So basically, as the senior pilot, I led them out of a place called Medang, which is on the northern coast of New Guinea, and probably one of the highlight places in New Guinea, the Medang Resort, which is where we always used to try and stay. So we've come out of there, and I've brought the three Kiowas with me from 162 Squadron. I took them in formation over the highlands, down through New Guinea, and then you jump onto an island called uh, Daru, and then uh, where you sort of check back into Australia, and then you land on Horn Island, where we stayed the night. And uh, again, it was beers all around, cigars, poker, big night. Uh, one of those classic nights where you see on TV all the pilots. Um, so it was two each for them. And then I had my tradesman with me, uh, this young guy, Corby. It was his first trip away. So from Horn Island, they go down the east coast of Australia to Townsville. And I went down the inside of the Gulf, heading down to a place called Weeper, where I need to get fuel next. And then I'll bend around the Gulf through Normanton. Century Mine, and then up 
uh, MacArthur River Mine, Catherine, back to Darwin. But it's a three-day job. So it's a lot of flying. It's about 30 hours of flying or about 25 hours of flying to get yourself home. So anyway, we get to, uh, we leave Horn Island, the, the Townsend boys launch, and I launch uh, my own way with my, my tradie. Doors are off we got, um, and we jump over the water back onto mainland Australia and down the coast I go. So on the way down there, it was really windy, like about 30 knots on the nose, 35 knots. And at, at, a, at 100 knots, we're not uh, indicated, we're not getting uh, very far. And I remember running the numbers on my whisk wheel thinking, I don't even think we're going to make it uh, to Weeper. So I basically made this decision to get down lower. And in Australia, we're cleared down to 200 feet uh, anywhere. And in a low-flying area, we're allowed to get lower than that. Uh, and in the old days, it was not below ground level. These days, it's usually 50 feet uh, for the big machines. So I get myself lower and lower because uh, basically I'm trying to get under the tree line to get into that friction layer and, and get under the wind. And while I'm travelling down this coast about maybe about 10 or 15 minutes later, we see all these fishermen on the beach. And I said to Corby, hey, give him a wave, uh, you know, let him be friendly, that sort of thing. So he's waving at them. As we go past them, he said to me, oh, I don't think they're waving. I think they're actually in distress, like they're signalling us. And I knew I was out of fuel. And I was like, oh, God, what am I going to do? So anyway, I turned around, uh, came back to the hover, and then just sort of looked at them and waved again, and they're pointing at the ground, saying, basically, we need you guys to land. We've got a problem. And I look at the fuel again and go, mate, I have got maybe five minutes maximum here to play with. So we, I ended up deciding to land in that camp. And it looked like uh, in Australia, the 4X ad. So for all your listeners, if you can imagine those 4X ads with men on the beach drinking and fishing and no family, this is what I was landing in. There's about 10 or 12 of these guys. So we land in their camp area, and there are hundreds of beer cans everywhere. There's about six or eight four-wheel drives, uh, a lot of tents. And as I land, I said to Corby, get out, go and see what they want, mate, but we've only got minutes. So he goes over, and when he walks over there, all these blokes charge out of the bush at him. They've all got beer in their hands. I mean, it's only 8.30 in the morning, everybody's drinking. And then he's talking to them, and then he comes over to me, plugs in, and says, uh, they want to know if we're the rescue chopper. And I go, rescue chopper? Mate, what do you mean? We're in the army. We're not rescuing anybody. And he goes, oh, well, that guy, one of those guys there with a satellite phone says he's called for a, a medivac and he's asked for a rescue chopper because one of them's injured. And, uh, and we've arrived. And I said, well, it's a, it's a fluke, mate. It's a miracle we're here. It's, it's, it's sort of unplanned. And I don't think I've got the fuel for this. So he ran over and talked to them again. And then he came back and said, oh, it's pretty urgent. And I was like, okay, well, we, we better help them. So basically, um, I, just, I left the aircraft running. So in those days, we used to run it down to idle, put the collective lock on and cycle friction and get out. And you could leave this thing for up to an hour if you wanted to do, do planning and that and don't shut down, particularly out in the middle of nowhere where you thought maybe you'd have a problem starting again. So I, I just walked away from the aircraft, wandered over, and um, I walked up to this guy that looked to be the guy in charge. He had the satellite phone, and he, says, uh, he said to me, G'day, mate, are you the uh, rescue chopper? And I said, no, mate, I'm uh, Matt Barker from the Army. Uh, I'm just passing through, and it's a fluke we saw you. Uh, yeah, so we're not the rescue chopper. And he goes, oh, that's a bit of a bugger, because I've, uh, I've gone for a rescue chopper for one of our blokes, and they've told me there's nothing available at the moment. I don't suppose you blokes could help. And I said, oh, I'm trying to get the weeper. And as an aside, in the back of my aircraft, I had about 200, 250 pounds of coffee. So, <laughs> so when you go to uh, and I was the only guy out of Darwin that they've gone with Corby, the deal is that we go and get the coffee. So we get Blue Mountain coffee out of the Highlands of New Guinea. And I must have had 250 pounds. So we're stacked to the roof in the back. 
and all of our gear, our tradie gear, like we were pretty heavy actually. And uh, I'm looking at the coffee going, no, this is not going to work. We're going to have to unload everything, go to Weeper, come back, get all my gear. So today's turning into a big day. So I said, oh, I, I could do it. Uh, is he? Is, is it pretty serious? And he goes, oh, mate, he's, he's in big trouble. He's dying. And I went, oh, right. Okay, no worries. What's going on? You know, and he said, oh, right. Uh, he said, well, uh, he said, well he's, uh, he's, got this, uh, he's got this chicken bone stuck up his ass. And I go, what? And he goes, yeah, mate, it's stuck up his ass. And I went, oh. Gee, that's pretty bad. And I suddenly went, hang on, I'm on um, one of those shows where you're being filmed. I went, oh, you're what? You know what? Handy camera when I was a kid. I said, oh, you're right, mate. No worries. He goes, mate, I'm serious. And he said, it gets worse than that, mate. The uh, the bone's horizontal. And I was like, oh, geez, that, uh, that can't be good. So I said, oh, right. Yeah, no worries at all. Uh, where is this guy? And they said, oh, we'll go and get him. So they race off. These two guys, he yells at these two guys, he go and get him. So they run away, and we're all just sort of standing there whistling, do, do, do. I can hear the girl from Epanema music in the background humming, da, da, da. And finally, I hear this screaming, like I mean epic screaming. And then they grab this guy, and they're dragging him through the bush, basically, uh, one under each arm, and his feet are dragging. And they bring him straight to me, and man, was this guy screaming. And he comes up to me, and he's just yelling at my face, like he's only about a foot away, and I go, I go, you're right, mate. He goes, no, I'm not all right. He's screaming, and and, and I go, I go, hey, what's happened? And he goes, I've got a bloody chicken bone stuck up my ass. <laughs> I go, all right, well let's confirm then. Okay, so we've confirmed the injury. No worries. I said, uh, mate, I could take you to hospital. Uh, I'll have to put you in the chopper though. Are you are you happy to do that? He goes, yes, yes. Just get me out of here. I just need to get to the hospital. I, I, I'm in agony. So he's screaming and carrying on. So I said, right, just go and lay him down. So they lay this guy down on the bush on his stomach and he's basically writhing around on his stomach screaming. And I look at Corby. Corby's got eyes like pizza plates down, like it's a scene from The Deer Hunter or some sort of movie we've all seen where you go, man, I can hear the banjos plucking here. We need to get out of here. And I said, yeah. I look at Corby and say, we need to get out of here, mate. This is a bit strange. So I said to Corby, grab two guys, go and empty the aircraft and get it ready in the back to take this guy. So he goes and does that. And then I look at the guy with the, um, the sat phone. I said, right, mate, I've got my notebook out, my little green army notebook. I said, right, I'm going to give you my satellite phone number. So can I get your sat number so that when I get to Weepail, we can ring? Uh, I said, can you not touch any of my gear? I'm, I'm happy to leave it here as long as you guys don't touch all our stuff. Um, right, so what do you want me to tell Weepail? Because I don't even know if there's a hospital there. But if there is a hospital, what do you want me to tell them? And this guy's like, oh, I don't know, mate. I suppose, uh, I suppose you better tell him he's got a chicken bone stuck up his ass. And I went, yep, I better do that. So I write yeah. down, male, 32, roughly, chicken bone stuck up ass. Um, he says, oh, mate, you better tell him it's horizontal for you, right? So I'm writing this down. So bone horizontal. Uh, yep, I think I've got everything. I said, is there anything else? And he goes, yeah, mate. Uh, there's a bit more to this story. Um, you know, yeah. He goes, last night, mate, he was yelling and he's screaming. I can't sleep. Nobody can sleep. So about midnight, the boys and I, we've had enough. So, um, yeah, so we uh, we held him down and I went up there with a pair of needle-nose pliers, mate. And I think, uh, I think I perforated his bowel, mate. I think he's bleeding to death. And I was like, what? You are insane. So I'm writing this down. So I'm writing um, needle-nose pliers, perforated bowel, bleeding to death. And I wrote that on my, my little notebook. And he goes, yeah, yeah, mate, you tell the doctor all that. I go, I will, mate. I look forward to what he's going to say, but no worries. <laughs> Uh, have you got anything else for me? And he goes, uh, 
No, mate, I reckon that's uh, that's probably about the story, yeah. Yeah, good luck with it. And I said, uh, yeah, are any of you guys going to, like, drive in to see if he's okay? And he said, oh, I suppose we could. I could send a couple of the boys. But he said to, to drive there, he said, that'll take about two days because they basically bush-bashed in there with no roads. And I said, oh, okay, well, I'll let them know that his friends are coming. Would that be okay? He goes, yeah, yeah, let them know. So anyway, we get to the aircraft, walked up to Corby, said, we've got to get out of here. It is madness what's going on here. And so we dragged the guy around to the aircraft, and the, the, it's still running, so we've got him under the rotor blades. And I'm trying to get him in the back seat because <laughs> there's nowhere to lay down in a Kiowa. And he screams at me, where am I laying down? And I said, you're going to have to sit. And he looks at me and he bursts into tears. And even I started crying. I said, I'm going to cry. So I give him a hug. I said, there you go, there's a hug, but you have to get in. So we're pushing him in the back, and he's trying to hold his bum off the seat. And, and so Corby's holding him by his chest, I'm strapping him in, and I found some earplugs and just shoved them in his ears. And uh, this guy was going mental case. I was like, bloody hell. So we get in the front, wound the throttle on, but he undid the friction and wash off we go. So we're climbing out. And Corby's going, what was going on back there? I said, I'll tell you in a moment the rest of this story because I said it doesn't end with a chicken bone. So we get airborne, and I'm trying to ring somebody on the, uh, sorry, trying to uh, radio somebody. And we had to get to about 5,000 feet, and then I finally got um, Brisbane on the radio. And I was like, I've got Brisbane, this is uh, Army 01. Um, I'm on a no-notice medevac. I need assistance uh, at Weeper. Can you inform me if there's a doctor or a hospital at Weeper that can meet us at the airport? I'll be there in about an hour, and I've got, um, uh, I'll need a refuel on arrival as well. So the, the guy says, no worries, I'll, I'll start looking at it. So he would obviously go away, get in the telephone books, and he's trying to find out what's going on. So he rings me back about 10 minutes later. He goes, Army 01, this is uh, Brisbane. Turns out there is a, a hospital at Weepup, and uh, I've got the doctor on the phone. He wants to ask you a couple of questions. <laughs> I was like, uh, no worries. Uh, Army 01, roger that. Go ahead. So this is the area, this is the area frequency? So this is on the area frequency. So everybody's kind of gone quiet. This is the major freak north of uh, Australia. So northern Australia, this is the VHF frequency. So all the planes and airliners coming into Australia, they're on that frequency as well as they enter our airspace. So people have been quacking away on the radio before that. You know, I'd heard an RFDS aircraft, a Royal Flying Doctor aircraft, and um, I'd heard Cathay and maybe a Qantas flight or something. But, but in the end, everybody's inbound to Australia on that frequency. So it's kind of a bit quiet because I've, I've told them this, this, uh, I've got this situation. So he says, Army 01, Roger that, uh, Brisbane, uh, from the doctor, is the man conscious? Oh, you know what? So I look behind me and all I can see is this writhing, screaming maniac. I said, Army 01, a firm, uh, the man is uh, conscious. Uh, and they go, Roger that. And then they come back again, Army 01, from the doctor, is the man in any pain? <laughs> Army 01, a firm, the man is in excruciating pain, currently screaming his head off in the back of my aircraft. I'm like, ooh, Army 01, Roger that, stand by. And then uh, Army 01, Brisbane, from the doctor, what is the nature of the emergency? And then I just started laughing. I, I couldn't help myself. I just burst out laughing. And then they're like, Army 01, confirm what's normal. I'm like, yeah, what's normal in the front of the aircraft? Uh, Army 01, Roger, stand by. And then I look at Corby and he's going, yeah, tell him, tell him. And I go, no, I don't want to tell him. I'm trying to save this man's, you know, pride. And then he goes, no, no, tell him. And I said, uh, Brisbane, Army 01, um, the man, uh, well, he's got, uh, oh, he's got this, well, he's got a chicken bone stuck up his ass. There you go. And then the radio just erupts, but people are on it. Everybody's laughing and uh, everybody, like every call sign on the frequency, just it just breaks out. And Brisbane couldn't get back on the radio for about a minute. And finally, after a minute, they go, all call signs, clear this frequency, break, Army 01, confirm, 
where the chicken bone was. <laughs> I mean, Joan, uh, the chicken bone is up his ass, up his anus. And uh, they go, ooh, Roger that. So they come back. <laughs> um, he's a run from the doctor. Roger, he's got the story. Uh, he'll see you in 45 minutes. And I go, uh, Brisbane, I'm um, Israel on uh, Roger that. However, uh, there's further to this story. The bone is horizontal. And, uh, and then he laughs again. Everybody's laughing again. And then he tells him again. And then he said, have you got anything else for us? And I go, Brisbane, I'm um, Israel on Um We believe the man is bleeding to death, perforated bowel uh, with his mates trying to extract bone with needle nose pliers. And then the radio silent, and all I heard was ouch. And that's the only word I heard. And uh, they come back again saying, Roger, the doc's got everything now. I'll see you in about 40 minutes. So I'm flying in, and about five or 10 minutes later, I get this call from the Radicum Cafe, I think it was. And they go, Army 01, Cafe, you know, whatever. Confirmed status of the chicken man. <laughs> and I go, oh, still at the back screaming. And they go, Roger, thanks. And then I had a, a call from another airline. Uh, and everybody now with nothing to do up in airline world is like, what's going on? And uh, so the whole way in, every aircraft is calling me about the chicken man. So we got to Weeper, uh, the ambulance met us there, and they dragged him out, laid him face down on one of those uh, beds. They've got those, those stretches, and off he went. Uh, I refueled, went back, got all my gear. That took me like another hour to get back, another hour back, did another refuel, and then finally I ended up at uh, Century Mine, I think, for the night. And I'd done about a nine-and-a-half-hour base while big day. And... Uh, Anyway, so we, we talked the whole way, and I got back to Darwin about two days later, and I thought, I better pen an email to my CO, my commanding officer, Dan Minoki, because we were sort of a detached squadron. And uh, this guy's name was Phil Smith, pretty angry guy. He uh, red hair, pretty fired up, Yosemite Sam. And uh, I thought, I better tell him the story, because I was always taught from day one, uh, loyalty up, loyalty down, word always gets back, and your boss will be the first to know. And they were the three rules of uh, my first boss, Brian Millen. And actually, they've held me in good stead for years. So I thought, I'll pen this email because Corby was there and no way is he not going to get the bar tonight back in Darwin and tell all the boys, so I better get him. So I wrote this email saying, dear sir, uh, just letting you know I did this, no notice medivac, and I told him the story of the chicken man. And then hit send and off I went. And I had the, um, so that was on the Sunday and I had the Monday, Tuesday off and I get back Wednesday. I get this phone call, uh, I ran to the phone, g'day, Captain Barker. And he goes, G'day, mate, it's Phil. And I go, Oh, Phil, who he goes, it's your CEO, you moron. Oh, right, can I, sir? He goes, What is going on with the chicken man? <laughs> I said, Oh, <laughs> you see my email? I said, Sir, I'm so sorry. I've flown a civilian. I, I look, it was urgent. The guy was dying. And he just says, I love it. <laughs> I go, All right. He goes, No, mate, you obviously had to do what you had to do. And uh, I, I, uh, you made the right decision. I'm going to send your email on to a couple of colonels. And I said, oh, don't do that. Uh, please don't do that. And then he goes, no, no, I'm doing it. And he hits send, and he sends it to about six or eight colonels, other aviation CEOs and that, and off it goes. But by the following day, this thing had gone epic, and I was getting emails from people in America, in Staff College, in the UK, all over Australia. I was getting about 100 emails a day about the chicken man and uh, trying, trying to work out what's happened to this poor guy. And anyway, what happened was one of my, my email got put in the Canberra Times on the Saturday and the defence minister was reading the story and he rings the chief of defence force, rings the chief of the army, bang, 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 it finally gets to me. And they say, tell Captain Barker to find out what's happened to the chicken man because we think he might sue us for defamation because in my email I recommended him for um, the Darwin Award, the world's dumbest way to get killed. And I've nominated him. And they, I was okay till I, I nominated him for the Darwin Award in my email. So anyway, I had to find the chicken man. 
So Tony Fraser was the uh, brigadier at the time. He rings me. He says, hey, Matt, Tony. Again, I say, who am I talking to? He goes, it's your, it's your brigadier, you moron. <laughs> he said, find the chicken man and tell him, find out what happened to him, and you're only to tell me. Uh, and he said, I have to tell the defence minister what's happened to this bloke. So uh, anyway, it took me two days to find him, but I did find him. Turns out he, he ends up in the Cairns Base Hospital. Uh, the doctors up in Weeper had been up his bum all day and they couldn't get this bloody thing out. So they uh, evacuated him with raw flying doctors. Uh, they operated on him and the bone was removed. So there you go. So he was safe. And uh, and I sent this uh, signal to the brigadier telling him that the chicken man is alive and that this poultry matter is hopefully closed, and, uh, which did not do me any favours at all for saying that in this email. Uh, and anyway, the answer is we don't know how it got there. So I will say that to the listeners. But what we suspect happened is that uh, the night before I got there, that they were all on the beers, obviously, and that he'd passed out first because he looked like one of the young guys there. And someone to wake him up shoved a drumstick up his bum. And on the side of the drumstick is a little tiny narrow bone, and that's the one. And we reckon that when he went up there, that bone pivots only one direction. So it'll go up clean, but when you pull it back the other way, it would have uh, bent up and snapped off. And we reckon that that was probably the bone. Now, maybe that's not it, but in the end, we were all pretty happy that that was the story because when we got to this guy, nobody was laughing about it. They were all very sheepish and were like, what what have you boys been doing last night? Uh, And anyway, so the Ticker Man is alive and well, and it's actually one of the only rescues I've done in my entire career. But uh, I've got a little trophy with a chicken bone mounted on a plaque from the Army uh, many years ago. So that's that's my one and only rescue story for you. (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness, that's very, very noteworthy. That's a nuts. There you go. I can see that via past year. Because I think um, Phil Smith was, he may have then moved on to, he may have been the brigadier when uh, there, was a, there was a Huey incident with the the indie boys. And uh, yeah, they got a bit, of, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, a bit of a bit of attention from uh, from him and then I think as well. He so. did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's a hard man actually, one of my hardest CEOs. But a, a very a fair guy, I think. If you did the right thing, you were right. It was if you stuffed up. Yeah, you had to get in there first and fall on your sword, and you were going to get punished regardless. But at least you were the first one there to tell him. So, uh, yeah, there's many a many a lieutenant captain that have uh, received the wrath of Phil Smith, <laughs> and uh, I like it. But no, that one of my good story. I like that one. That's a good one. Right, man. We're jumping probably back and forth in in timeline here uh, because again, this is when you were QFI, and I'm guessing timeline puts this back a little bit. But you're also involved in probably the biggest uh, aviation crash we've had in the Australian Defence Force. So this is stepping back now to 1996 in Townsville, uh, where we had uh, two Blackhawks uh, collide in midair, and uh, I think it was 18 people killed. And it's sort of, you know, it's like 21 years ago now, so it's kind of starting to slip out of, you know, be, be a lot of people who wouldn't know much about that incident. Uh, and I think you were airborne at the time. So can you just quickly, you know, give your background on, on that? Yeah, so the... The accident uh, we're talking about is the uh, Blackhawk mid-air collision um, in mid-1996. So I was at, uh, a, fly- a pilot at uh, A Squadron at uh, 5 Aviation Regiment, and on that particular year, we had the counter-terrorism uh, role. And so what used to happen was each year it would swap between A and B Squadron, and that year just happened to be uh, our turn. Um, but the year before that uh, had been very low-flying hours and what had happened was that the army had really worked the brand new Blackhawks to the ground really and nearly all of them were lined up in R3 servicing so a deep maintenance servicing and there was no money for parts so for whatever your usage rate is each year there's a a bunch of money allocated to that and uh, we had uh, basically flown these aircraft 
significantly and to the point where there was there was no hours left. So the year before that, in 95, uh, the regiment had hardly flown. And in fact, I got about 180 hours that year, but I'm from a world that five or 600 is quite normal. And getting 180 was uh, really, you're flying once a week if you're lucky. And, um, and we had a couple of uh, exercises that year where we would take all the aircraft and the other squadron wouldn't fly and then they would go away and then we wouldn't fly. So there were significant periods where we just didn't fly. And then we're back in the counter-terrorist role and um, we find ourselves flying an exercise called Day Rotor. So we have two of these exercises each year. They go for a couple of weeks and the Special Air Service Regiment from Perth would come over to us or we would go to them. And this particular year they came to Townsville and uh, our job was to fly them around on a series of uh, activities, basically special recovery missions, um, and we provide the aircraft. So in the end, things, uh, I guess, uh, when we got going with it, uh, the first night without them, we were just doing basic pairs training. And on this particular night, we were doing a squadron activity. So six aircraft or more, everybody involved. And it had started off quite difficult because everybody was a bit behind with all of the planning. And the people who had gone up to do the reconnaissance of the uh, the target area for that particular scenario weren't any of the aircrew flying. Only one of them had gone up and he'd taken one of the SAS guys with him. And so none of us had seen this area. So the fire support base we used was very low set. It was on a ridge line, really no vertical development, just those revetments where they put the uh, artillery. So I think there's about six revetments there. So at night, when you're doing an approach to this, very hard to find. We should say this This is the middle of the bush. So it's, you know, this is yeah, a- in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, on, on the Army Range, west of Townsville. So in the middle of nowhere on the firing range because they wanted to do live firing. So in the end, we, we have an activity. Uh, but the area they picked is not going to be great. And also that night, there was no moon. So we had uh, nil moon. There's a little bit of overcast, but the illumination was not very good. And uh, the actual place we're approaching to is not great either. So we did it that day. And so for the first time we arrived there, we saw it. And in those days, the Blackhawks, nearly all of them were using Doppler as a uh, Doppler navigation system. And we had one or two aircraft or more that had uh, GPS, these these brand new things called GPS. And we would put the uh, P codes in them, the precision coding. But not everybody had it. And I didn't have it either. I had Doppler in my aircraft. So we flew an approach and terminated it just so everybody could do a Doppler update, confirm where you were going to then do the assault and work out all your roping positions because all of the soldiers are doing fast roping. So we're hovering at around 70 feet. Because you were fully fully bombed up. You had like seats out, people sitting on the floor. So you were full of SAS troopers? Yeah, normally about 14 of them in the, in the back. So generally just the back row of seats, there's four. You could have 14 to 16, maybe more guys in the back. So it's definitely a very heavy aircraft. And with the four crew, yeah, the Blackhawk, ours are the old Alpha models with the analog engines and everything, uh, the original version. So the UH-60 Alpha would be the equivalent in America. And so quite an old aircraft, I guess. So uh, we did all that and then flew the approach in the day. Nothing really went wrong that particular time. But unfortunately, we then had to go back to Townsville and get fuel for the night activity whereas our customers uh, stayed behind and did the debrief there because we weren't able to get a fuel truck up there to refuel us out in the bush. So by the time we got back to the location, we had to get back there before last flight to land and uh, have a debrief and have dinner with them. 
and then basically we did a debrief without them, they did a debrief, and we didn't really liaise much between us, and then off we went to do the night serial, basically exactly the same as the day. But during the day one, there had been discussions between that guy, flight lead, Kel Hales, who was killed, unfortunately, and our OC about wanting to vary it slightly because the, the run, the running direction we'd had, we hadn't been able to get down very low. We were coming down off the high ground and the customer had asked if we could vary it. And our, our boss had said, no, no, just do it the same as the daytime. So anyway, we took off, loaded body on board, sorry, took off and uh, went flying for about 10 minutes to line us up for the final run-in and the assault. So during that approach, the uh, two of the aircraft, the Ural Fire Support, got going, and on the approach, we were all decelerating in the approach, and we still couldn't see it. So we're not very far away. We're only about half a mile to a mile away, and nobody can see the uh, target area or the, uh, the place we're going. And... Um, Unfortunately, uh, on really close final, we still can't see it. So we're, only, we're coming back through probably 60 knots, and we still can't see it. And lead turns left, and uh, we're all tracking straight ahead. But we're very close. Like we're only one to two rotors apart, uh, nil illumination, and we're absolutely flat out trying to go to my roping point, as everybody else is. Uh, but we formed a T-shape, so three across the front and me behind the centre guy in a T-shape. So number one then came back across from left to right and suddenly appeared inside the night vision. And he then, probably at the last moment, sees number two and takes avoiding action and tries to go up and left out of the way. And and in my opinion only, I felt that he and number two were going to the same place. And that's how it looked to me with their spotlights or their searchlights. So he, and as he came up and left, unfortunately for him, his main rotor blade struck number two and severed his uh, tail rotor, and then number two ends up in a, uh, a violent uh, and rapid spin to the right because he's now lost his tail rotor. And also with that, his main rotor blades are cut through the fuel tanks, which are behind the cabin. And this is right in front of you. Like, How far in trail were you behind number two? Oh, I was only, oh, not far. Only two rotors maximum. Yeah, very close. Because my roping point was, well, was only one rotor behind number two. And we'd worked that out in the day and it was very close and I was a bit worried about it because in the day I was working overtime to maintain my position at one rotor with him in the hover and uh, and I'd actually said to him in the day, don't move back because my main rotor's almost over your tail rotor. Like we're very, very tight for the roping positions because uh, the, the ground dropped away rapidly down to a river. And so for me to get on, to get my guys down the rope side, I'd had to sit very close to two. And so I knew that in the night, so I was very close behind him. And so, uh, yes, unfortunately, they collide, and his main rotor going through the fuel tank then caused the fuel to spray up into the hot engines, which caused an instantaneous explosion and fire uh, with the loss of his tail rotor. So we watched all that happening, you know, 50 feet in front of me. So did you guys get hit with, was your aircraft hit with Deborah's and so? Yeah, we were. We did actually. We had a lot of damage to my aircraft from uh, shrapnel from the explosion and the impact, and all my main rotor and main rotor blade is all impacted. But I luckily got up and out of the way. So one went underneath my nose, uh, but unfortunately for him, he was at that point rolling upside down and never recovered. I, I believe they hit the ground upside down. And but two guys survived that. I think one SAS guy and one crewman survived in that aircraft because they'd gone in with the blades coming off and going in upside down, and they were only 100 
to 150 feet above the ground, I suspect, when that happened. Yeah, and that all happened in front of me. So we got up and out of the way, went up through the explosion and basically just went straight ahead. And then I watched number two the whole way to impact because he was spinning right and moving forward as it happened. So he landed near him off to the side a bit where they impacted as well. Uh, And quite a few guys were killed in that aircraft as well. And then we had to get back in there. So uh, once it had happened, I was the only aircraft that had seen what had happened. The other guys, well, everybody was basically on the radio again, what's just happened? And then I was able to say, we've just had a mid-air, both aircraft are down. And then um, the two fire support aircraft were able to land and the other sold aircraft was able to land because they were already in the hover. And they started providing immediate assistance and getting guys out of the crash because guys were trapped in the wreckage. Very, very difficult situation for everybody. Did you get the other four machines down on the ground at once or did you guys have to take turns? No, so the three other guys landed and I had to wait uh, till I could get back in there. And so I came in maybe five minutes later, maybe a bit more. But uh, with all the fires going, it was making it difficult with the night vision. But we did get in and land. And one by one, we were carrying injured back to Townsville, which was about about 20 minutes flying time away from where the range is. Yeah, so I had uh, four people put onto my aircraft and individually we were we were racing back to Townsville to get these guys there and in a way it was not lucky but it was fortuitous that that night they were having a ambulance, all the ambulance officers and that were at the Townsville base hospital having a seminar about what they would do in the event of a, a major uh, emergency. Wow, okay. So what that meant was that everybody was there. So we were landing in the park next door to the hospital and unloading and uh, it was fortuitous that there were a significant number of emergency personnel there that night and put into action that uh, that plan at the hospital. So, uh, and it's probably lucky that um, probably a lot of guys lived that may not have if it was a, a, you know, a light on staff in the middle of the night. So how many trips did you do back out to the area? Like how many ferries did you do with um, with people on board? Well, unfortunately, it was only the one because I then went in for hot refuel, uh, linked up with another guy, and uh, and on the way out, we were halfway there when they said there was no one left, which was a bit sad because uh, we we knew that that couldn't be right if everybody was okay. Uh, if you just ran the numbers in your head, you're like, well, if we're all only taking four or so each, that means there must be a lot of guys who've been killed. And in fact, there were, there were 18 who were killed. So we were told to head back. And, and then we land off it quite difficult when we got back um, because people were waiting for us and people will find this in an accident. The first thing people want you to do is to be put in a room isolated yep. to write your story. And so I had somebody, a captain, grab me and said, get in that room and start writing. And that was how I was received. And my co-pilot, Andrew Allport, in fact, he still flies yep. uh, now. And he and I have talked about this quite a bit. And uh, so he was put in a room and each of the crew and, and we started writing our um, our version of events. And I think I was in there for about two or three hours, which then formed the basis for my, um, I guess, uh, my interview at the Board of Inquiry. But it was, it was very, uh, very difficult times. And it was extremely sad, particularly when it's your unit, your squadron, and for the SAS guys. I think even to this day, I, I, um, I, you know, feel very sad and sorry for those guys who simply get in the back and uh, and and we let them down. I guess we, you know it wasn't it was us that did it, did it, and um, and we we uh, we caused 18 guys to lose their lives. And uh, I think a lot of people will probably never recover from that. You know, so 
it uh, yeah, it was it was a very long year, and uh, and for me it was um, I decided to keep going uh, with it, and so I stayed in the unit till the end of uh, the following year, another eighteen months before I moved on. But um, yeah, quite a difficult time, and something that has changed probably army aviation forever, and it's the reason that there's uh, risk management now, and so all of our rules and regulations changed. We stopped flying a beam formation, we, uh, you know, we stopped flying at one rotor. Uh, in the dark, and uh, we, we started doing risk management. We And in the end, 6th Aviation Regiment in Sydney now is there for, for one reason, and it's because of the aftermath of that uh, accident that they decided to form a Special Forces Regiment permanently and not do it year on, year off, almost like a part-time job, that it was a specialist role that needed specialist training and skills and, and permanent application of those. So that's the reason that 6th Aviation exists, is uh, that, that accident. And Matt, I'll ask you, you know, how that affected your flying because then you, you, when I think you did the QFI thing after that, but just touching on that, uh, yeah, you know, you jumped out of the, the aircraft and had to write a statement. I was airborne when the machine went off the, the ship in Fiji and the same thing, um, you know, when we landed, I was a, the safety officer, so same thing, we were grabbing everyone's kind of uh, statements. But then the, the, the really weird thing is, you know, we then had to finish that operation on the ship, come back and the board inquiry and things, but we kind of couldn't talk to each other about it because... You know, you couldn't sort of cross-contaminate until the whole inquiry was done. And that sort of took, you know, that started before Christmas and after Christmas. So there's this whole period where everyone was sort of going through their, their bits and pieces, but you kind of couldn't sit there and talk to many people about it because we were kind of obligated as well to, you know, try and quarantine your story so that when you got up and, and spoke, you kind of weren't, you know, cross-contaminating each other's story. So I don't know if you went through a, through a similar thing where... You know, you're all sitting there in the same room and you're, you're working together and you've all been through this traumatic thing, but we kind of couldn't really talk too much about it with, between ourselves. Uh, no, I agree with you because uh, the Board of Inquiry for this one was very quick, though. They formed it, I think they formed it within a day or two, and uh, it was given, I guess, the highest priority to get answers. But sometimes these answers take years to figure out. Metallurgists down in in the uh, Aeronautical and Maritime Research Laboratory in Melbourne and People like that who study those crash sites take a long time, but the Board of Inquiry was given six months to uh, come up with a solution and they had to travel all around Australia. But you're right, sitting in that crew room afterwards, uh, like the following day, we're all just back at work sitting there. And I, I think I was a bit, a lot of people turn up like the psychologists, the padres, all of your support network that the military has turned up. But I was very reticent to talk to them and and I guess I felt I would rather just talk to my people, which were the pilots and crewmen who'd been there, and that uh, I found solace in just talking to them. And I had no interest in, in professional help. But I think uh, I don't agree with what I, with that thought process, but that's just being honest, and that's how I felt. And uh, it was very strange because each of us was going up to the board, as you said, and, uh, and we were also ordered not to talk to each other. But there was a lot of conflicting reports on what had happened, and people on the ground had seen things people airborne had seen things and you know so there were many stories to that they had to piece together and try and work it out and that that caused a lot of pressure and stress at work between individuals where perhaps people didn't agree with what had happened and also in the hospital there were many people injured that were long-term injured for months that were were also having to be dealt with and and then at the same time we had to start dealing with the funerals and there was a very big service in Perth for those uh, SAS soldiers, which I attended. And um, each of the aviation individuals, each 
person has a family and the army uh, were putting on a, um, a military funeral for those guys which we were attending. And I was finding it quite hard to go to each one, that it was, it was becoming harder and harder to face the families of those guys and, and basically you know, try and explain to them what had happened. But we hadn't been to the Board of Inquiry yet, so we weren't allowed to talk about it. But, and I found that quite difficult facing people's wives and mothers and their kids, um, you know, and what I could tell them, I suppose, and, and what had happened to their son or father, I found it very difficult. And, um, and But then we had to get on with it. So I think not even a month later, I was back flying in Perth doing the same thing because it became this concern at the higher levels that it would be seen that a loss in capability was perhaps a weakness on Australia's behalf. So we were directed to get on with it again. So I found that quite difficult as well. But we had to fly to Perth and um, I was the only assault guy remaining. So I did individual aircraft assaults for a week. A couple of the guys were able to make an aerial fire support aircraft and go and do that. But they were very aware that they wanted people to see that we were back. And I, I did find that a bit strange at the time when I felt maybe we all needed a bit of space. But, you know, I um, went and did it. And um, and I found that quite difficult at night going back into that exact same scenario and keeping my head squared away uh, to do what we do, I suppose, and then fly back across Australia, back to Townsville. So, uh, and then we got back into it again, uh, reformed with a new group of younger, more inexperienced people and uh, had to start again and um, get on with it. So, and yeah, I found the whole thing quite challenging. And, and to be honest with you, I think all we did was we just drank a lot of beer and I remember my unit, we must have been going out four or five nights a week as a way of dealing with it. And it seemed to work, you know, people could go out and no one minded if they went out and got on the beers and poured their heart out. It was okay. And I found that was uh, probably the best way to do it, surrounded by my people and uh, go and get drunk and they've been doing it again. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I did and, I, and a lot of us did it and a uh, very fuzzy year after that going out all the time, but I found it was a unit, not a unit in crisis, but a unit that was desperately trying to get back together and reform and do our job. So we did. Yeah, and I kept doing it for another year and a half before I moved on, went back to teaching on uh, squirrels uh, down at the helicopter school. Yeah. How, how did that affect your teaching? Like, you know, being through that, and because, you know, so often we go flying, we kind of put that sort of stuff to the back of our head. And, you know, it's the fun and you look outside and, you know, some of the stories you've told earlier and, and things like that. And you kind of hide, you know, a lot of that darkness that can sort of happen in the background. But then jumping in with, with brand new students and, and teaching them to fly, did you, did you find that influenced how you then were teaching them? Oh, I did actually. It changed me forever. And I will say that, that it took a bit of the fun of flying out. Uh, it, uh, it showed me in no uncertain way what happens when it goes wrong and what are the repercussions of that. And when we say to our students, you know, you get killed doing that, well, I have seen exactly what happens when a formation is uh, comes together in a bad way and we have a mid-air. And I, I now know exactly what happens. Uh, I don't need another lesson in that one. But it did change the way I, I approach many things. I found, I found formation flying a bit difficult, uh, particularly at night when we were getting in close again at that two-rotor mark or... And um, I found uh, that I hadn't had any problems before, as in I didn't complain ever about what we were doing. Because if you do it a lot, you tend to normalise the abnormal and you don't see these problems coming anymore because 
you've done so much practice at it that uh, you've stopped saying that maybe there's a better way to do this. So I started asking those questions, perhaps a bit more of things that I was doing. But I did find solace in flying. I found I had a lot of trouble being in a car. If my wife was driving and she got anywhere near the car in front of me, my foot would just go through the floor and I'd lean back in the chair. In fact, I think I broke one of our our, uh, front left seats once with her driving and just not braking at the rate that my brain needed to brake. And uh, that took me five years to get over. And I remember my wife saying to me, oh, you've stopped putting your foot through the floor, so you must be getting over it. And it took five years. But I couldn't get in a car with somebody driving. And that was my indicator that things weren't right. But I didn't find I was like that flying, where I have a set of controls and I can take over instantly if I feel I need to. And perhaps the access to the controls on the other side, even with a trainee, meant that I didn't have to worry about it. But in a car, it's, it's quite different. So, um, you know, I ended up driving a lot with my wife. She'd say, you drive. And therefore, I was able to maintain control of the situation. But I do actually remember that period. And, uh, and I had a very large personal space that, that uh, it was never that big, but it, did, it got big after that incident. Because yeah. uh, Bowie, in his notes here, uh, when he introduces, he's saying when you were the uh, QFI for the, the squadron or the team, possibly in Timor that the, the progression rate for the DCATs underneath you. So the Army has a, a categorization system for people listening. You, know, you start off in a unit as a, as a DCAT, and then when you basically you don't supervise, then you move to a CCAT, BCAT, and ACAT. And uh, he made a comment there that um, you were very slow in, in upgrading people. And I was just wondering you know, if you had anything to Was that because of your, your experience with the Blackhawk crash, or was that just a, a personal thing that you had? I think it was more a case of um, that the guys then weren't doing a lot of different flying. And so when you make somebody unsupervised, there's no limit on that license. And it means you can fly anywhere in the world, basically. We end up with theatre qualifications, but in our normal army regulatory framework, when you give somebody a Category C pilot rating, he's unsupervised. He can do anything. And the problem at the time was, around Bowie's time, was that these guys were going to Timor coming home, having a break for four months and then going back to Timor. And some of these guys in their first two years flying had spent about 14 months, 12 to 14 months in Timor doing these four-month stints there, but actually hadn't ever been around Australia supporting the army like I had. So it was these guys in this group that had a supervisory qualification, some of them for two years, whereas when I'd gone through, as I'd said earlier, I was done in six months, but I had I'd done about 300 hours of flying in six months. I had been all over Australia in that time and supported many, many units and done many, many things, whereas these guys were flying day VFR or night vision in Timor, and that's all they knew. And uh, so when we brought them back to Australia and did a bit of instrument flying, unfortunately, I remember on one of those, nine out of ten of them failed their instrument rating, which was a bit of a disaster. But these poor guys hadn't flown in cloud for two years and hadn't made a a radio call instrument flying using radar or anything for years. And then all of a sudden they found themselves on East Coast Australia, single pilot doing an instrument rating uh, for for flying, and they couldn't pass. So we learned pretty quickly that the price we paid for Timor was that these guys weren't developing in their general flying skills, that they had become very good at Timor flying. These guys were excellent at it. And they could fly the, the border in Timor off by heart at night with no moon. These guys could fly 180 kilometre border off by heart. They'd become geniuses at it. 
and they had become very good surveillance pilots where you look when you're flying for change. And slightly different to reconnaissance, you just get so good at your area of operations that you you see a, a track that somebody's made or you see a vehicle that you didn't see last week and all these little things pop up. And people like Bowie had become really, really good at this. But back in Australia, if you said to them, have you ever supported a flying unit in Australia, then the answer was no. And so that at the time, the CO and the squadron commander were very reticent to give these guys a um, an upgrade because they'd just become team or specialists. So that's probably more the case. But for me, it was more a case of when I flew with them, I was constantly trying to give them every amount of experience that I had. And, and no one has ever failed a dual check with me ever in, in 30 years of flying. And I was taught by a guy very early on by the name of Mick Rankin. He was one of my mentors. And he'd say to me, I'm not here to check your current. I'm here to get you current. And he says, at the end of this three-hour dual check, you'll be current and I'll let you go flying again. And I took on his philosophy and I still do that when I do a dual check, I, I, say, to my, I say to the person, you'll be current at the end of this sortie. But I'm assuming the first door rotation will be a bit of a pause up and the second one won't be too bad. And then by the time you get to the sixth or the eighth one, I expect you to be able to do a zero landing to the point I tell you to. And if you can do that, then, we, then you've come back to where you were three months ago when I last checked you. So we do all those sort of things with them. And, um, and if a guy wasn't up to speed, he had to do more work with me. And I took that role quite seriously as their squadron commander that I'd, over that 15-year uh, period in the Army, I'd become their mentor. And so, but the good news is I had held on to all the philosophies that people like Mink Rankin and even all the way back at Chris Townsend, he had some very, very good philosophies that I still live by when I fly. And uh, I passed all of them on. But unfortunately in the Army these days, you get 100, about 150 hours a year flying. It's not a rate that allows you to accelerate fast enough if you want to look back at the old system and say, why aren't I a, an unsupervised pilot in six months? And you go, well, if you're flying 600 hours a year, you probably would be, but you're only flying 150 and you're probably doing 100 in the simulators as well. And the simulators are good for certain things, but they're not very good for developing your ability to operate independently. They're certainly not good at that. They're good at teaching you emergency training and a lot of our tactics and that are done in the simulators. But for pure going away flying and looking after yourself and managing the customer and taking care of everything you could imagine with the flying from fueling to eating to living somewhere to, to maintenance, that takes experience. And the Army has definitely moved away from how we used to be where I would go away as a brand new pilot with a tradesman for a month. And in my first year, I think I was away for 10 months and my second year, 10 or 11 months. And these days, they go away for a couple of months a year, but it's always as a large package as a troop or a squadron. So they don't get developed as individuals as, as quickly as we used to. So, But I get his point, and I, and I do agree with him that it was slow, but there was definitely a reason for that. Yeah, I think now it comes to the territory as well. You know, these are bigger machines, so you know, Kiowas were probably a little bit more looser and you had a bit more freedom than we did in the Hueys. Um, but, you know, as a Hueys, we could easily go away with one aircraft for, as you said, you know, a couple of weeks and support an exercise and come back with, you know, one or two tradies. But now it's the bigger machine. Yeah. It's, it's you, you take a, you, as you said, you take a big footprint wherever you go. You're not uh, individual aircraft spearing off across the countryside. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, we, when we go away, man, we take it. It's like, it's like a circus. Everybody goes. And uh, with the maintenance and the vehicles and spare parts, running a couple of Tigers or a couple of NH90s, is not running two Kiowas or two Porters in the old days. It just doesn't happen like that. 
and uh, it's a lot of a lot of maintenance and logistics support. So yeah, the world has changed. I, and I, I do miss the old days flying army, and and I and I, and I think that I, I enjoyed those times when we were basically let loose around Australia on our own, and uh, that's why there's <laughs> that's why there's so many stories from then. There's too many witnesses these days. <laughs> well, that's it. It's, it's all recorded as well. You know, hum systems. Yeah, and yeah exactly right. <laughs> Yeah, Matt, you didn't. You know, you then took, a, I guess, a, a you know, a change of direction. Well, not really a change of direction, but um, you know, I imagine Tiger. Uh, so this is the armed reconnaissance helicopter. So this was, and again, I guess, talking from someone who was on the outside looking in. You know, I first got to the unit in about two thousand and two, and that's when they were looking at replacing Kiowa in the reconnaissance role with this armed helicopter. And it was going to be like around the corner. This thing was going to arrive, and uh, you guys were in towns. Sorry, in Darwin, everyone was going to be flying Tiger, and that was in 2002. And then it just kept dragging on and on. But you were there very early, early in the day. So can you talk about yeah, turning up on on Tiger course and the very first days of, of Tiger? Ah, uh, yeah. So after I finished as the the squadron instructor for um, one six one Ricky Squadron up in Darwin. I'd probably been in the army by then for about 15 years flying, and uh, they were looking for somebody to be the, the standards officer for Tiger. So I got a phone call in Timor. I was over there and uh, asking me if I was willing to uh, do that job. And Tiger had always interested me. Anything like that, I'd seen it years earlier when it had done the Australian tour down in Canberra and Sydney, and then it went up to Townsville. And unfortunately, the prototype hit the ground. In that accident up in, uh, in in Townsville, in fact, in high range, near where we'd had the uh, 96 crash, and they wrote off that uh, Tiger prototype. But uh, it kind of proved that you would survive a crash. It was the, it was the test that nobody wanted to talk about, and you couldn't prove unless it crashed. But uh, in the end, uh, it crashed, and um, a guy by the name of Brendan Dwyer was the OC of 162. He might have been the 2IC at the time, but he uh, he was in the crash, and uh, he, they both got out and walked away. They'd hit the ground at this phenomenal speed and rate of descent and uh, just got out and survived. And um, So anyway, I joined the program as the standards officer and um, I had really no background in shooting. I got put on Huey gunships for a, for a shoot up in Shoulder Bay to introduce me to miniguns and rockets and uh, just had a fantastic time. And then I got sent over to uh, Mort's One. So that's the US Marine Corps Weapons and Tactics Instructor course. And I did that as the first foreigner. That was a bit of a strange one. There was 160 Marines on course and one Aussie. And, uh, yeah, it was a bit weird. Is, it a, is it a flying course or is it just a ground course? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's their wow, weapons just, and tactics. I, was kind of imagine a, and, I can't imagine a course with 160 students on it. It's crazy. It's amazing. So every Marine officer does it. Uh, you've got to do it. And if you don't do it, you can't get into their mission planning teams. So this course goes for about 10 weeks and um, it costs a fortune. It's about to run two courses a year, probably one and a half billion American dollars to run this thing. So they'd love to run three, but they can't. They can't afford it. So, and it's the most amazing course you'll ever go on because it's all run live, and about 80, 80 aircraft turn up for it. So all of the U.S. Marine Corps flying units uh, each year are allocated to support that course. So a, um, you know, a Cobra Huey squadron will turn up with their aircraft and a. Uh, CH-46, the old three-legged uh, Chinooks, the Sea Knights, they turn up. Uh, Harriers, Hornets, the CH-53, Sea Stallions, you name it. So there's about 80 aircraft all flying, 160 students being U.S. Marine Corps infantry, artillery, Hercules drivers, 
fighter pilots, helicopter pilots. And the, what they want is they want everybody to do this course so that they all think the same. So when they go into a mission planning team on a boat, every guy in that mission planning team has passed that course and they all understand each other's limitations and what they're good at. And it makes the mission planning cycle really quick because everybody knows what everybody can do. So anyway, I got put on that course, which was quite funny, and I ended up on the Cobra course. And I'd never flown a Cobra, so <laughs> it ended up being quite funny. But I had a few goes on it, and I flew a uh, Huey shooting, and I flew the Sea Knight, and I flew the Cobra, and uh, finished up on that course and came back to Australia with some terrific ideas. We have the, the COAC, Combined Officers Advanced course, but this thing is like that course on steroids. So I'd done that, and I also went to the UK to learn from the Army Air Corps Apache Flying School how they got going. So they'd come out of Gazelle and Lynx, and somehow they'd been thrown all these D-model Apaches. And I went over there to say, I spent a couple of months with them and just said, look, how did you get going? Because I'm trying to get Tiger going. I'm on my own as the standards officer, and I need uh, help. And they all had a bit of a laugh. And they said, oh, we sent 10 Category A instructors to America, and that's how we got going. <laughs> and then they all did the uh, US Army course at Fort Rucker, stayed there for up to two years, and then came back and started riding. But unfortunately for us, the Tiger program was very immature. So I was sent to France at the beginning of '04. There was another Army guy there, uh, Richard Emmett, and uh, another guy, Dave Lynch, came with me. And then a company, KBR, Kellogg, Brown and Root, had won the contract to write, write and deliver the training. So they had about about nine or ten guys there to be flying instructors. But unfortunately, the program was fairly behind. Uh, it was fairly immature. So I got there in January '04, but I didn't start flying till August that year. And I got going with another guy. And it was very slow because they had one prototype that we could use. So I was sharing that with four French Army instructors. There were five German guys there at a place called Le Luc, which is the Tiger Training School at the uh, Le Luc Army Aviation Base in France. And these guys had been waiting for the German version of Tiger for three years, and they were still sitting there waiting. And then I, I turned up as the Aussie. And in the end, I spent uh, another year and a bit there till the end of 05, learning to fly the French Tiger, and then was transitioned onto the Australian version because we've got American radios and American weapon systems and a few other things that the French one didn't have. And Matt, we were talking before we hit record, and you said you, when you turned up, you expected to open up textbooks and stuff like that and start reading. But uh... Really, there was nothing there. I found it really bizarre because I got there as the standards officer, so my job was to write the flying standards manual for Tiger, but I'd never flown it, so I found this a bit strange. So I said to the French guys, uh, hey, can I just get your manuals in French and I'll get somebody to interpret them and then I'll sort of Australianise them with the way that we fly and I have learned that everybody flying helicopters, we're all doing it differently, but it's always a laugh. There's no one way of doing it. So I said, yep, no problem. You can just give me the books. And I remember this French guy saying, uh, I don't know what these books are that you talk of. <laughs> and I was like, oh, um, do you have any manuals on how to fly Tiger? And he said, uh, no. <laughs> I said, oh, no. Oh, dear, what have I done? And I realized at that point what I got myself into. So I started writing, and it took me um, – about a year and a half to write that first manual. And I'd been writing for six or eight months before I got flying. And then once I got flying, it helped me out a bit. But uh, the uh, the Tigers, even at the time, we had the top owl uh, helmet-mounted display system. And we didn't actually have the uh, display mount onto the basic helmet even then. 
So my first flight, he asked me if I had sunglasses. <laughs> so when you put the helmet on the top of our one, it looks like a, it looks a bit like a cosmonaut helmet. Looks uh, not quite as cool as the American ones. And uh, and so I had this thing on with my sunglasses. I had no checklist. The brief, there was no brief. And uh, I was told to sit back and enjoy the flight. <laughs> I said, all right. And uh, off we went on a French summer's day. And uh, I did my first ride in a, in a Tiger. And uh, I said to him, oh, do you want me to maybe follow you through on a checklist or uh, you know anything at all? He goes, uh, I'm not really sure why. He said, I'm going to do everything. <laughs> I said, all right. Oh, in Australia, we do it a bit differently. But no worries. So I have no books. So I have no helmet-mounted display system. Uh, let's go. I've got gloves. <laughs> <Let's> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so off we went. And I did that first flight, came back and started writing. So probably for every hour I flew, I would write for um, four to eight hours afterwards. To try and get all the data. Yeah. So that was everything. That was that was startup checklist. That was everything. Yeah, everything. Yeah. So they got me a checklist in the end. But actually, what did I do, and how did he show me things to fly? I basically had to race back there. And being a man, I've only got so much capacity in my mental brain. So I would race back and start writing for hours. You know, up to four hours sitting at my laptop, trying to remember every single thing I'd done. And two of the other army guys would sit down with me and throw questions at me so that we could try and capture this data and then I would put it into my manual that I was writing. Like, how do you start the aircraft when you're taxiing? How do you taxi? What speed? How do you set the controls, power and attitude? You know, flying a circuit, how do you do a takeoff in a Tiger? Like, what speeds do they want? What power settings? So all of that had to be worked out from nothing. And so at the end of 2005, I came back to Australia and unfortunately, the training was not going very well and out of everybody there, 13 of us, I was the only one who got qualified, which caused some issues because after two years there, in fact, some guys had been there three years, we only had one instructor and that was me. So we brought out a, uh, my French instructor. He was then flown out to Australia for a couple of months so that he could help me get this whole thing started. So at Oki, we started training Australians. As soon as I got qualified here to fly up with an Australian category, a pilot category, I was able to get going. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm with an instructor category as well. And I just started and I just grabbed the first two guys and began. And so I probably was involved in teaching nearly all of them. And we had a few guys come out. We had the, my French uh, test pilot come out. We had a Eurocopter, a German guy come out. Uh, he came out and helped for a few months, trying to help us get going. And uh, But in the end, we got it all going. And even to this day, I think we've done well. I mean, I flew Tigers for 11 years and uh, we haven't had a major incident. Like, we haven't crashed any. Yep. And, and I genuinely think we, we've, we've figured out an appropriate way to fly them. Like, I'm sure there's a thousand ways to fly Tiger. But we, we've come up with a way that uses them and in, in, a, in a really good way. And I think they do a terrific job. And uh, the pilots that come out training them, like, they're so different to what I was and I did my Kiowa course way back when I joined the Army. And these guys come out after a, you know, a 10-week tactics course at the end of how do you fly a Tiger. And they really honestly know how to use those weapon systems and they know how to, to fly that aircraft tactically. And, and then they get up to Darwin to the regiment and they've got another couple of years of development. And I think, I think the aircraft is, is terrific. I think in what it does, it's an armed reconnaissance helicopter. I mean, they, they refer to it now as an attack helicopter, but... It's a six and a half ton machine, whereas a, a, an Apache's 10, 10 and a half tons. It's a totally different aircraft. And uh, for what we had at the time and what they decided, you know, for a country, for an army that had never flown attack helicopters, I think we've done pretty good. 
Well, it's such a huge step going, you know, you look at a Cairo, look at the systems there and that. And that's the thing that blows me away. Like, you know, whenever I see it at an open day or something like that, you know, you look at it in pictures and that, and you kind of have an impression of how big it is. But then you actually see it on the tarmac. It still surprises me every time when I see it, how big it is. It is is a big machine. It is. It's a big bit of kit. And and I do, I think we did well. All those Apache guys, you know, they had the Cobras for 30 years before they flew Apache. And they'd had all that, those lessons learned when they jumped to Apache A model. And then, then by the time they got the D model with the longbow radars, they'd been flying Apache for, you know, 20 years. And then we got something similar and we had no background in it. We'd flown Kiowas and some Hueys and some Huey gunships. And, uh, but a lot of those techniques and that didn't come across because of all the, the mission systems and everything in these aircraft that you don't fly it like a Huey or a Huey gunship. It's, it's totally different. But you're right, I think we've done well in the NH-90, or as we call it, the MRH, the multi-role helicopter, you know, is a, is a huge leap from Blackhawk. But I always refer to an MRH as a big tiger because it's, it's, it, the design philosophy is very similar, the systems are very similar. And if you've flown a tiger, I, I feel like you're better off when you get to MRH because a, uh, a lot of it is a crossover compared to, say, a Blackhawk or a Huey and you go to a, a, an MRH. It's quite a big jump in technology and mission systems, and um, not to mention the things fly-by-wire. There's, there's a big jump just in itself. A fly-by-wire system in a helicopter is amazing. So, um, no, no, I think I think we did well in Tiger, and I loved it. And I, I flew them for 11 years, and, and, and now if you go to work, there's a whole library full of books that Australia has developed, all of the, the flight manuals, the checklist, the weapon delivery manuals, everything. And we started, I was there, we started with nothing. There wasn't a piece of paper, <laughs> and we just had to get on with it. And I think that was a—it's a bit of an Australian way of doing business, perhaps. But uh, what it meant was it took a long time. Like people's aspirations for perhaps how fast they thought we would get it going, and that we would be an online capability uh, was a lot longer. And I was told years ago by a guy, as a guy in the Hornet program, and he said, when they come up with something, they're going to build it. It takes ten years to get the prototype, and then it takes ten years till you see it in the squadron. And he said, it's a 20-year plan. And he said, if you think it's quicker than that, you're wrong. And uh, this guy had been in charge of Australia bringing in the Hornets. And he'd learned this lesson the hard way. And I remember him saying this. And I reckon it's the same for Tiger. It's mid-80s technology. It flew in the mid-90s. And then in 2005, we brought it back to Australia. And uh, we had no background in it. And here we are, 2017. And I think that thing's operating you know, pretty good. It's doing what we wanted it to do, and we're certainly stretching it with the weapon systems and the payload, and that it keeps going up and up and up. But uh, yeah, I think Australian Army they did a good job, you know, including the guys, the contractors who helped us. You know, we started with nothing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Not a bad run. We haven't crashed any. We've done all right actually. We still got twenty-two, and we bought twenty-two seventeen years ago. So they're doing well, yeah. All right, well, I'll tease out two stories around Tiger then, then we might uh, close it up. But uh, one I've got here is that uh, you jumped in one machine and the, the cyclics felt wrong, and you, then you jump in another one to try and work out what's going on. So I don't know if you remember that story, but there's this one there that, uh, again, Bowie's arming up with, and they might have had the, the cyclics around the wrong way. Oh, I think it might have been the collective, because we had the collective, collective jam yeah. years ago. Yeah, I think so. And we, we found um, there were some problems with them that, uh, in fact, there were two of them in the early days. The French Army had uh, collective jam, and the guy actually got it on the ground. And uh, they then had to do a a check of all of the fleet worldwide. And they did find a a problem, I think, with it, that they came up with a solution. But 
I remember being in, in Oakey, in fact, that's probably when he was there and uh, moving that uh, collective and finding a bit of a binding in it and uh, suddenly realising we might have had the same trouble. But I think we've done pretty good, uh, Australians. We've kind of slipped through without losing any, with any sort of situations like that. And I know the German army lost one a few years ago and the French have lost a couple. And we've come out of it pretty good. Okay, I, th- I think he thought the uh, the front seat one might have been installed in the back seat, in the wrong way round or something like that. Oh right, no, no, I don't no. remember that. Okay, I think uh, <laughs> no. the only thing I remember is uh, <laughs> when we're in France, the one of the test pilots who had, had very limited time on the aircraft, being told by the uh, the French test pilot in the front that doing the first rocket shooting, and uh, being told. <laughs> to basically uh, push the illuminated button. But in the Tiger, there's a lot of illuminated oh, no. buttons. And our guy's saying, you know, which one? And, he, and in the front, there's really only one light, but in the back, there's lots. And he's saying, push the illuminated one, you know, push le bouton. And uh, this guy going, okay, and he pushes the button, but it's the jettison button. Oh, and, nice. uh, and, then, and then off comes our seven-shot rocket launcher, which was loaded, and the chase aircraft all erupting on the radio and... Uh, this guy, you know, Phil, Phil, have you pushed the button? And he's like, yes, I pushed the button. Uh, I'm not really sure what else you want me to do. And he's like, okay, I can see you haven't pushed the button. Which button did you push? <laughs> but it's a great CRM story where they go, they go, oh, and then they suddenly realize they've they push, he's pushed the jettison button. Anyway, there's this great photo we've got of a, a seven-shot rocket launcher coming away from a Tiger. And uh, it's a good CRM one where we talk about saying, yeah, when you tell somebody in another cockpit that you can't see, you've got to be very careful what you tell them. And we, we bring that up in our stories with our students with the CRM and saying, hey, when you tell a guy to do something, like identify, confirm, select, you can tell him to do all that, but you can't actually see what yeah, he's doing he's and you can't so. actually confirm that he's doing it. So we use that procedure just to slow him down and say, basically, are you really, really sure that you want to push that button? And um, we've had only one incident, I think, in Australia where we went, they accidentally hit the wrong button and put the second engine into idle and had to enter order rotation and, and then recover both engines, but not getting that quite right. We've only had one of them in, in you know, 12 years of operation, but I know high enough they could enter auto and recover because it takes about a 1,000 feet to do that. But, uh, yeah, it's a, that's one of those stories where you go, mate, I can, I can actually see how that can go wrong. And uh, with language and uh, culture and no, no sort of procedures like we use in Australia, and then, um, yeah, push the button. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, last one we'll finish on is, um, and, and again, I don't know where it was. I don't think it was that Oki for it, if it was an Oki or Dharma, but there was a parade, and it was like the, the introduction of the service of Tiger. And uh, I'm pretty sure that the photo was on the front page of the, the Army newspaper where it had a you know, Tiger and, a, and a, uh, like a cavalry horse walking along in front. And uh, so I'm not sure about the details of the parade, but uh, you were telling me again the other day where there was a, a horse that needed to be sedated so they could taking part in this uh, in this parade. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what happened was when we were in France, they wanted to bring the Tigers back for this big parade, so the introduction to service of Tiger. And the problem with this is in many of these programs is that they book these dates way, way out in front. And you start to get under pressure where we were in France flying that the two Aussie aircraft had to be put on a, a plane because we'd, we'd leased an Antonov which has cost a couple of million bucks, and so that's booked. And the most important thing to book is the paint shop in Eurocopter or Airbus because the wait line can be up to 10 weeks at the time. So when we got a slot for the paint shop, 
and we got a slot for the uh, Antonov, we had to get these aircraft back to Australia. Everything starts rolling in motion. And then these parades get bigger than Ben-Hur. Everybody starts getting ideas about what they want. And one of the ideas they wanted was this, this uh, changing of the guard of reconnaissance and the old light horseman. <laughs> it's being handed over to the new generation in um, Tigers. So we get this phone call in France saying that we need, needed to come up with a risk management plan where we would have tigers taxiing into the apron in front of the crowd, but in front of them would be two light horsemen, and that would be the photo you've seen. And uh, I remember just laughing, saying, who's putting horses and helicopters in the same area? How is this working? And uh, we'd been tasked to come up with a risk management for this. So these poor old horses, so basically we came up with shoving as much cotton wool in their ears as you could get in there and then basically you know uh, giving them sedatives so that they would um, so that they would basically be nice and calm so I'm not 100% if they gave them the sedatives or whatever but in the end we had to come up with a plan for what do we do if the helicopter if the horse goes mental case because of the helicopter so <laughs> we're going to do this thing and we were coming up with plans to basically get them off the apron and then sedate them uh, like with a, a drug a needle and, and basically knock them out so that they didn't run into these helicopters. So we came up with all sorts of ideas, but I just remember as a pilot being told, you know, by people perhaps who don't fly, saying, well, we've got this plan and we, we want horses and helicopters in the same photo, this change of the guard, and every pilot standing there looking at them going, you've got to be kidding, this is insane. But in, in fact, it worked out okay that they, they got the horses, uh, no, nothing bolted. The helicopters actually, uh, we got them there on time and they made it. And all those photos that you see now are basically uh, a risk management plan, which I think had fairly high risk on it, but it somehow been managed. It all worked out pretty good. And, uh, and, and that photo, I think, is seen quite often when they, they do tigers. But uh, that was the first day they had them there in Australia. And back in France, we were all over there. And unfortunately, they were the aircraft I was supposed to be training on. So, so the training ground to a halt pretty quickly uh, after that. And, um, yeah, horses and helicopters, it's been done once, but I'm not sure if I would ever do it again. Yeah. Fair enough. Oh, man, look, that's been crazy. You've got, um, you know, a huge amount of tales there. That's, it's nuts, but uh, that's been a, an awesome, fun time listening to those, and I'm sure we're only scratching the surface, so I can only imagine what else you've been doing. But uh, it, sounds like, yeah, it sounds yeah. like you still love turning up and going flying, so that's after... Is that, what are we now? No, 30, I love it. 30, well, 30, 30 years, years of SSOs. It's, it's 30 years this year in the Army, yeah, so I... I I love it, mate, and I, I do it because I enjoy it, and um, I haven't found anything else out there that I'd rather do, so I'm getting old slowly, uh, flying <laughs> helicopters. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of those stories. It's, uh, it's amazing to sort of get some of those insights and, and hear what goes on, so that's been a, a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks, Vic. Have a good day, mate. Cheers. That was the very funny and very experienced Matt Barker. There are photos and a short bio of Matt's career up on the show website that are well worth checking out. There are no comments on the blog post yet, so if you loved hearing Matt's stories, please do leave a comment there, or if you have flown with Matt or work with Matt. If you're reading the social media posts for the episodes on Facebook or LinkedIn, you'll see the, the high regard that people hold Matt in. If you've never heard the chicken bone story before, then it's not one you're going to forget. There are a few of you I know who have been looking forward to hearing Matt tell it again, and now you've got an easy way to share that. 
I also wanted to pay our respects to those that lost their lives or were injured in the 1996 Blackhawk crash, and also you know, for their families. They were training for a very challenging role. Matt spoke about the difficulty he had in dealing with things afterwards, and I'm sure, in fact, I know that there are people listening who have lost work colleagues, family, and, uh, and friends to a helicopter crash. You know, the best thing we can do is honour their memory, and I'm sure they would want us to go out and enjoy aviation and love what it is that we do, but to work super hard at holding the standard high and for us to make sure that ourselves and our workmates all come home safely at the end of the day. Thank you to everyone that supports the show on Patreon. Your financial help really does help offset the bandwidth cost for streaming the audio files each month. If you'd be interested in kicking in even just a dollar a show, then you can do that at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. If you haven't subscribed on iTunes or another podcast player yet, then go do that. That's the easiest way of making sure you get future episodes direct to your phone. You can also download the list of the top 10 helicopter books as voted by show listeners at rotarywingshow.com. Thank you for hanging out again. I've been your host, Mick Carlin. Can't wait to catch you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.